Good morning, Four Oaks Church, wherever you happen to be. I'm Paul Gilbert, uh, the lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. You know, and as, as things are kind of slowly opening up recreationally out there, we know a lot of you are, are cautiously, tentatively planning some of those summer excursions. And it reminds me growing up that as a family, we took many trips to the coast. And when I say we took trips to the coast, I don't mean the beach because those are two entirely different things. You see, my mom was sort of a family historian. Instead of going to the beach, we took the opportunity to go to museums and took tours of things like aircraft carriers and forts and historical sites and those big um, plaques that you would sit and take two hours to read. And so when I married Susan, her family had the tradition of actually going to the beach. And once we were married, we kind of joined in to that stream with her family, and it was like a whole new world was open to me. It was this glorious reality that I knew not of, and we would get a condo, and we'd ride on the beach, and there's lots of eating out, and laying out in the sun, and not having to stand in lines or or be anywhere, And, and it was just a new, it was a new tradition. It was a part of a new relational reality of of being a part of her family. Now, if any point in there I had shown indifference to the beach, I wouldn't just have been showing indifference to the ocean or the sands or the waves. I would have been showing indifference to the family because that's part of what we do, who we are. Now, Peter makes this same comparison when it comes to being a part of the family of God. And we've been looking at this in our study through 1 Peter. Last, Peter, last week, Peter had some pretty profound, astounding, maybe even controversial things to say. In essence, he, he told us that to be indifferent to holiness is in fact to be indifferent to God himself. See, God says, be holy as I am holy. And the reason that should be so compelling to us as God's family, as God's people, is that we have now become a part of his family. We have a new status. We have a new identity. We bear the family likeness. God has purchased our redemption, and there's profound freedom and joy and peace and beauty to be tethered to God. What else would we do, Peter seems to be saying, but to pursue holiness as our heavenly Father is holy? Again, it would have been like me telling my wife's family, I'm no to the beach because I'm going to stay home and watch C-SPAN or something like that. And if kids ask your parents about that reference. Now, Peter makes a shift in this section. He begins what we would kind of broadly say is the practical section of the letter. He wants to show us what holiness looks like across a spectrum of relationships. And that's where we're going to be for the next four or five weeks here in First Peter under sort of this series within a series called Living Out Our Hope as the People of God. And we're going to be looking at what it means to live lives of holiness in the world, at work, in our families. But today we're looking at God's massive building project, which makes all of those other building projects possible, him building his church. And so there's three points. Today's sermon, make it easy for you. Here we go. Number one, who is the builder? Number two, what is he building? And finally, how is he building it? And before we jump into 1 Peter, let's really ask the Lord's help. 
Heavenly Father, um, we want our heart's desire, the, the beat of our hearts, to beat after you. Just as a little boy or little girl looks up to their father, wants to be just like them, Lord, you are our Heavenly Father. And you've given us a, a pattern to walk after you, to reflect your glory. That's a blessing to ourselves and other people. And Lord, we're going to see this morning the very beginnings of that, why that's even possible, how it is that we are made a part of your family. And so, Father, we pray for help, for illumination, for enlightenment from your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, number one, who is the builder? Peter, look at verse four. Here refers to the builder as not only the builder, but he is a stone that he himself is building with. And of course, he's referring to Jesus. And when Peter says in verse four that Jesus is a stone, he's talking about a builder's stone. And this is in reference to all sorts of Old Testament passages. For example, in Solomon's temple, we are told that the most time and the most effort um, was spent on constructing the foundation stones for that massive temple because the house was obviously going to, to rest or the God's temple was going to rest on these foundation stones. But of all of the foundation stones, the most important stone in an ancient building, um, and the principles are still applicable today in construction, but the most important sort of building block of all the building blocks is what the Bible calls the cornerstone. See, the cornerstone is the stone upon which all of the others depend. It's placed first. And depending upon how it's placed, it determines the angles of the walls. It determines the levelness of the stone courses. It thus has to be straight and true. Now, when we moved into our current house. I have never lived in a house with a pillar in the front before, but this house was the first where we currently live now. There was a big brick column. I thought that was kind of cool. thought it was kind of cool, though, um, until after a few years I realized that if the stone brick column in front of our house had been a tree, it was in the process of dying. It was what we affectionately referred to as the leaning tower of Gilbert. And, it, and it, was, it was leaning, and it was just a few inches a year, and it began to pick up speed, and it was heading towards the bathroom, unless we woke up one morning to, to be showering with this brick column. It was recommended that we get it fixed. So we called Neil Walters out, of course, to save the day. And what was discovered as they unpacked this thing and did all this massive amount of work is that there was no foundation for that column. There was no footer. Basically, this huge, massive ton of bricks, load of bricks, was just sort of placed willy-nilly on top of this very thin gravel sidewalk so that the fall of that column was absolutely inevitable. Now, here's something interesting about this passage as Peter is talking about building and rocks and stones. Remember for the gospel that Peter's given name was what? It was Simon. And in Matthew 16, we see there that Jesus, upon that occasion, gives Simon a nickname. He calls him Peter, which is Petros in the Greek. And it's going to be a play on words because he says, now I'm going to call you Peter or Petros because upon this rock, and in the rock the word is Petra, 
I will build my church. So Petros, I'm gonna, you're going to be the Petra. Now this is Jesus' way of telling Peter that he was going to play a chief role in the early church. That it was in part through Peter's leadership and his preaching and his writing that God was going to build his church. God always used human means, right? Um, he's sovereign and supernatural over the growth of his church, but he uses people. Now, Roman Catholicism looks to that passage about Peter being the rock and sees there sort of a primacy of, of Rome or the bishop of Rome or that Peter is establishing a succession of popes and it's going to be in the pope okay, or the church ultimately that ultimate authority is found. Now, here's what I find fascinating about this passage. Do you realize here that Peter, when he talks about the church of God and the building and the cornerstone, doesn't even mention himself. See, here would have been a prime opportunity for Peter to reaffirm his chief apostolic authority, would he not? Jesus is the cornerstone, Peter might say, and I am the chief apostle. So the way you build upon Jesus is you build upon me and my authority. But he doesn't say that, does he? No mention of himself. He simply says, Jesus is the cornerstone. And of course, he's referencing Isaiah 28, 16. And in that context, the leaders of Israel, they looked at their huge foundations, physical foundations of stone and the gate and the temple and said, we are impregnable. Nothing can keep us down. It didn't matter that God was sending his prophets to warn them to repent and to turn back to him. They said, we are fine. We are safe. Until 586 BC, every last stone was thrown to the ground. They were crushed and carried away. And it's God's way of reminding the Israelites, only me. I am the only cornerstone I am the only thing that you can build upon that is enduring. It's, again, Peter's way of telling us that Jesus is the foundation of all reality. Anything ultimately not built upon him will perish. And boy, are we not finding that out today in this season. Things that we've invested our whole lives in from a human perspective. Titles, positions, power, authority, money, just in a blink, vanishing, gone, physical lives. And Peter would say, yes, of course, because there is only one everlasting, all-sufficient building material. It is the rock of Jesus Christ. Now look back at verses 7 and 8. And Peter again is quoting, this is I think from Psalm 118. He says, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What is, what is Peter referencing here? He's simply telling us that everyone who is confronted with Christ, you who are at home right now or driving in your car or wherever you are listening to this, when you're hearing these words, when I hear these words, we are being confronted with the claims of Christ. And when once confronted with the claims of Christ, that makes a claim on us. We are faced with a moment of reckoning. We are faced with a moment of decision. You see, some will heed that, hear that call, the claims of Christ, the the. the the call of Christ to abandon our self-sufficiency, to abandon our will, to abandon 
our, our, our human concept of freedom and to submit ourselves wholly and fully and completely to him, some will hear that and they will be offended. They will stumble. They will fall. The claims will be much too high. Even as their life around them might be fading and perishing upon their own foundation, the, the call to Christian discipleship is just too much. And thus, Peter says, they stumble, they fall. But in order to come to Christ, you see, every one of us has to have that same crisis moment. And instead of being, of, of being offended by the claims of Christ and understanding that we in ourselves are not self-sufficient, we allow ourselves, we allow our self-sufficiency to be shattered. We allow ourselves to be broken. We, we, we admit the truth to ourselves that life apart from Christ simply does not work. There is nothing everlasting. There is nothing enduring apart from him. It's going to be either one way or the other. There's no neutral ground. See, when we come to Christ to simply say, I'll think about that later, even if in our hearts and minds we're not abjectly rejecting him, we are rejecting him. Because when we rightly see Christ and when we rightly see ourselves, our personal human foundations that we have been building our life upon will be shattered. And Peter says, when you do that, it's so hard, but it's so good. You will never be put to shame. Let me ask you this question. Who is the builder in your life right now? What are you building your life upon? Because Peter reminds us that ultimately there are two building projects and two only going on, two edifices being constructed. There is the human tower of Babel with all its frailties, all its insufficiencies, all its inadequacies. But then there's the spiritual house that's being built by Christ that's full of eternal glory. And that's the second point that we want to look at. Jesus is the builder. That's the first point. But the second point, what is he building? Look at verse 5. Peter says, you yourselves are living stones being built into a spiritual house. Now, for these readers and for ancient readers, they would have looked at something like this. And this would have actually been some pretty shocking language. Because for, for remember, for Gentiles, for pagans... In this polytheistic world where temples were the center of religious activity, temples were the center of human worship, to to, to say that you are being built into such a temple would have been entirely strange. But for Jews in particular, it would have been incredibly difficult to wrap their minds around. Because why? Because we know that in the Old Testament, the temple was... It was the primary dominant motif in all of Scripture to signify the presence of God. For the Jewish people, there was no more holy place than the temple. And in fact, in fact, let me say this, still is to the present day. So when we took our Four Oaks trip over to Israel a couple of years ago, we of course went to the Temple Mount where the first and second temples were constructed. And of course, they were both destroyed And you can go there now, and what's left of the temple is actually not a part of the temple itself. It's part of a retaining wall. 
It's a wall that held back the dirt on the Temple Mount so the temple could be built upon the Temple Mount. All that's left is this wall. It's called the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. And you can walk around the Temple Mount and you can see all the thrones that are being scattered and thrown down and, um, and are remnants from their destruction 2,000 years ago. And they call it the Wailing Wall because Jews will come and they will wail. They will mourn. And they will anticipate that one day this temple will be rebuilt. And when it is, the presence and the glory of God will finally be restored to us. And Peter says, no, 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 no. It's not a physical temple anymore. It's a spiritual temple. In fact, this spiritual temple is made of living stones. And Peter says, you are a part of that temple built upon the chief cornerstone. In other words, we are the temple of God, Paul says. He lives in us by his spirit. And it's interesting that Peter says we are in fact living stones. How does that work? Well, Peter says, because Jesus is alive because of the resurrection, And because we're united with him in his death on the cross and we're united with him in his resurrection from the dead means that we are raised with him. We are attached to Jesus eternally. We are alive eternally. And there is massive implications for us, church. Folks, you realize that when we come to Christ, he places us a living stone, a living brick, in his spiritual house. And this house that Jesus is constructing is not merely comprised of those who are alive right now. No, no. It's made up of everyone who is in Christ, past, present, and future. And do you realize that when you die, when I die, that we are still a part of that edifice? We are still a part of this spiritual temple. All who've come before us, all who will come after us, all are a part of that building. Susan and I have a couple friends that um, we knew well from Campus Crusade at University of Tennessee back back in Knoxville several decades ago. And recently we got the word that the husband of this couple that we knew um, had passed away. He was in his early 50s. And as we heard the story and the testimony, they were strong believers. But one of the things the wife said, and their kids were, they were just about to be empty nesters. They were just about, their kids were going to college and graduating college and moving on with life, four amazing kids. And they looked at one another when they got this terminal diagnosis And just were like, God, this is not the way we thought it was going to be. We thought we were going to have this next season of our life to enjoy one another, to travel, to enjoy our kids and our grandkids. But yet we're now reminded, and they are comforted by the fact that this spiritual temple that God is constructing, that he is building, is full of living stones. For Oaks, all those who've gone before you. For Oaks, all that will come after us. God is in the business of building his people. 
constructing this temple that will endure and be with him forever. Guys, you know, we can destroy church buildings. They can martyr the saints. They can marginalize believers. But the church, the people of God, the spiritual house of God, will never be destroyed. So what does this mean for us right here, right now? Third point, last point, here we go. How is he building it? Look at verse 5. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When I was little, my parents bought me tons and tons of Legos, and this was in the 80s, so it was the space era. Remember, you'd build the space shuttle and the moonwalk and all those things. And I'm, and I'm sad that I still don't have, I'm, still, I'm sad that I don't still have those, not because we want to give them to our grandkids, but they do fetch a, a mighty awesome price on eBay. But nonetheless, right, I remember when I would get that huge box of thousands of Lego pieces, and I would spread them all out, and I would get the instruction manual, and I would get the, the cardboard top and get the picture and know what I was trying to put together. If you were to pick up a singular piece of one of those Legos, you would never mistake that for the space shuttle, right? It was only as they were brought together, all in one place, all doing one thing, all working together, did it become the space shuttle, so to speak. Now look at verse 4. When Peter says, as we come to him, now this is a a, a massive implication for how God is now building his church. Remember that Peter is addressing Christians here. And he's not talking about salvation in this context. He's talking about what happens when the people of God gather together. What happens when the people of God get together for worship, when they get together in Bible study, when they get together in their small groups or their community groups or their accountability relationships? He says that when we come to him as living stones, he's reminding us, and you heard me say this last week, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. In other words, the way a stone really becomes a stone The way you and I really function the way that God designed us to function is that we draw close in relationship to him and with other believers. You see, the people of God are most the people of God when we are together. And we only reflect the fullest identity of who we are in Christ when we are connected to the other stones. Church, we're not just a bunch of singular stones sort of scattered around that you might kick along a gravel path. God says, no, no, no. I made you to be living stones in relationship with one another. And Peter says, and listen to this, look back at the text, and here is who we are when we come together, Peter says, We are a priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a chosen people. Now, we know that what happened in the Old Testament is that the priests would come and they would offer sacrifices on on behalf of the people. And then they would lead worship on behalf of the people. And what Peter is saying now is that that's not pastors who do that for you now. 
Pastors are important in the right context, but you, Four Oaks, are now the priesthood. You are now the ones, you are the royal priesthood. You are the ones who serve in the capacity of the body. You are the ones that come together offering spiritual sacrifices. Look at verse 5. He says, you're offering spiritual sacrifices. Verse 9, you're proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us into this marvelous light. What is Peter talking about? I think Peter is talking about what happens in every house of God. And that is worship. Folks, I want to make a worship disclaimer here. You've heard us say here many times that worship is not merely what we do on a Sunday morning. Worship is all of life. Worship is 24-7. Worship is how you treat your kids and what you spend your money on and your time and your hobbies and all that's fundamentally true. But understand something, that's not what Peter is talking about here. See, when, when Peter talks about offering spiritual sacrifices, he's talking about giving and praying and serving one another. When he talks about proclaiming his excellencies, he's talking about singing and preaching and praising and reminding ourselves of the goodness of God. In other words, he's talking about the gathered church. And the word that Peter uses for this spiritual house, oikos, you've heard it in other places, it literally means family. Because Peter has reminded us that coming to Christ means coming into community. That's why something in our souls in this pandemic season, even though we can't gather, haven't been able to this point, and, and there might be really good reasons, probably are for many of you not to gather going forward, at least for, for a while, there should still be something in our hearts to say this is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, one of the things that this season has exposed for us as God's people is how non-seriously sometimes we've taken what Peter is teaching here. We've been introduced to this idea of non-essential businesses or non-essential services, right? And what I'm about to say that was not meant to be a political statement uh, one way or the other, or when should churches open, or when they shouldn't, or what safety measures we should pursue. That's not what this comment is about. But the fact that we use that term non-essential so cavalierly, and that churches fundamentally are, in some states, on a lower tier than golf courses, liquor stores, and marijuana dispensaries, guys, that's not the world's fault. See, that's on us. We are the ones who oftentimes, let's admit this to ourselves, who have lived as if the people of God are non-essential. And if the church is not compelling to us, why in the world would we think it would be compelling to anyone else? What an opportunity we have this season in God's gracious providence to be reminded that whenever and wherever God's people gather, whether it's right here next Sunday morning or in our community groups or in our Bible studies or in our family worship or our one-on-one relationships, we are in fact living stones. And even when we can't be together, it should hurt you, it should hurt me. There should be an 
ache in our hearts to say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. How is it possible, and this is the most important question I think we can ask and answer this morning, how is it possible that we are now a part of the family of God? How is this possible that we are now in our finite physical bodies, we are now participating in this eternal weight of glory, this spiritual house that God is constructing, that no matter what happens in this life, what happens to our bodies, what happens to our institutions, ultimately nothing can change the fact that God is constructing this eternal spiritual house. How in the world have you and I been privileged grace to be a part of it? And it's because of Jesus. See, he was the master cornerstone. And upon him, the church is being built. He was the master builder. He is the master builder. He's putting together this spiritual edifice. But we also have to remember something. He is also the great high priest. Which means after he constructed this spiritual temple, he walked into that temple, into the Holy of Holies, which is the place the priest would go, And he offered a sacrifice. And this was a once and for all sacrifice. It didn't need to be done over and over again. And what was this sacrifice our great high priest made for us? It was the sacrifice of himself. He says, I'm going into that holy holies as the great high priest, and I'm not carrying a lamb. What I'm carrying is my own blood that pays the penalty that purchases your redemption so that you can be my holy people, so that you can be a part of my spiritual house, that you can now be a kingdom of priests. For Oaks, each of us has to come to this cornerstone, and either one of two things happens. Either we will be offended and stumble over the fact that someone would dare say you can't live life by yourself you can't make a go of this on your own you don't have the goods you don't have what it takes and we will walk away bitter or we will have our own self-sufficiency shattered and realize to be a part of the family of God means to recognize we don't deserve to be a part of the family of God it's all by his mercy it's all by his grace And I'm trusting in the great high priest who laid his life down for me so that I could be a part of his family. Do you know that Jesus? Let's pray.